It's the year 2043. You just got home from your job as a robot maintenance tech at the Amazon warehouse. Your daughter has goggles on because she's in the middle of a social studies class in a virtual reality environment. It's time for your weekly checkup, so you log into the online hospital and click your consent to share your medical data. Welcome to another episode of Exit 43, where we take a deep dive into things you probably didn't know about. My name is Jordan Fenster. This week, as in all other weeks, we'll be talking about issues around coronavirus, though we're looking forward to a time when we can talk about something else. Hopefully soon. In this episode, as you might have guessed from the intro, we're looking at second and third order implications of the current health crisis, like what might come of this in a decade or two. But I need to begin with a caveat. Nobody knows what's going to happen. Amy Webb says it better than me. I think sometimes the, the instinct is to say, you know, this seems to be the path that we're on right now, therefore this must be the conclusion in the future. And that equation only works, you know, if you're saying like, if A, then B, that only works if A is basically one variable and B is basically one outcome. But that's not how real life works. Webb describes herself as a quantitative futurist and founder of the Future Today Institute. And a professor of strategic foresight at the New York University Stern School of Business. Um, I've also written several books. I asked Webb to define the role of a futurist. So uh, a futurist is somebody who researches um, signals in the present uh, and then uses that data to build models that describe plausible next order implications and outcomes. Um, that information is used to develop strategies and we do this over long periods of time. But she's very careful with the term. She does not, for example, make predictions. Right. So first of all, a futurist does not make a prediction. Um, anybody calling themselves a futurist and then saying that they're making predictions is not doing the job. All that being said, let's be a little too glib and ask a simple question. Are we going to be replaced by robots? After all, robots don't get sick. It's a simple question with a complex answer, but maybe... If it is the case that uh, we have um, a decrease in the available labor force and also an increase in spending in, you know, 5G networks and capturing metadata within manufacturing and warehousing plants and AI as a service and cloud-based robotics and all these things, if those two things happen simultaneously, then yes, I think we see a faster acceleration of technological unemployment. After all, most of the largest companies have already been moving in that direction. If you're looking at manufacturing, what would it take for the workforce to be sort of replaced pretty quickly by robots? I'm not saying that's not going to happen, but what would that take? That would take an increase in investment by some of the leaders in the marketplace. And, you know, Elon or Tesla just announced yesterday it's laying off a huge chunk of its workforce. You know, my thought is that fairly soon we will possibly start seeing investment 
in the various parts of the automated ecosystem. But that's only one possible future. Right now, there are signals that tell us that that is a plausible future, but it's not the only plausible future, right? Another plausible future would be that um, the federal government decides to regulate the use of cloud-based robotics as a way to keep the labor force, you know, as if we're facing a extended recession with depression level unemployment, then there would be a, an, a federal incentive to prohibit the use of automated robots um, within warehouses, right? And also, if it's the case that um, we don't have a vaccine for another year, but we do have an antibody test that can be widely deployed, then yet another alternative future is people who have already tested positive for and either recovered or, you know, whatever, developed the requisite antibodies for the virus, like that, that tranche of people would go back to work. Let's turn to education. I'd like to introduce you to... Um, my name is Matt Wernzek. I'm a teacher at Archbishop Stepanak High School down in White Plains, New York. Uh, I teach 10th, 11th, and 12th grade. I teach U.S. history, and I teach AP micro and AP macroeconomics. After schooling went remote, rather than send out PDFs, Wernzek decided to do something different. I'll let him explain it. I had this new uh, Valve Index. It's a VR basically for video games. And it's really reactive and you can, you know, you're in this virtual world and you can, you know, you're, it moves with your fingers and moves with your hands and wherever you look, you look. There's like a whiteboard or like a window with markers. You know, I got the idea to, you know, perhaps I could teach a lesson in here, record it on my computer and then, you know, give it out to the students that way. He actually delivers his lesson on economics from inside a virtual reality environment. And I want to be clear, this is not science fiction. I was really excited to do this. I put in a lot of effort in, you know, setting it up, preparing my lesson. And then I basically just kind of gave my lesson, you know, my, my lecture as if I was in, in this virtual world in a VR video game. And you know, recorded it and sent it to my students. As excited as he was to innovate, the implications gave Wernicek pause. Is he helping to build a future where we don't even need teachers? I, you know, I, I teach economics. I'm always kind of like, what does this mean for my job going forward? Like, am I still going to have a job in 20 years, you know? He imagines a pre-recorded teacher educating hundreds in a virtual reality environment while a lower-paid teaching assistant works with individual students. You could have, like, one teacher up in, in front of um on, on like a board from you know harvard teaching you know a thousand students and in each classroom where there's like 20 kids there's maybe like a ta or something like that that kind of manages the classroom there and kind of grades you know papers and stuff like that but one teacher doing the job of you know 20 or something like that and then of course there's the issue of equity as schools become more invested in and reliant on technology, some students could get left behind, deepening the digital divide. The, the virus may, may have flipped on a light switch and suddenly revealed to the average person just how unforgivably deep and wide the digital gap is in the United States. Unforgivable. 
right? However, the FCC has known about this for a long time. This is nothing new. They have a fund put aside that I think technically falls under the library allocation to like help rural areas get online, but nobody's been in a hurry to, to, you know, prove outcomes. And, you know, rural, like connecting people in rural communities is one thing. What about in urban areas where you have a high concentration of people living uh, who aren't connected? This is a problem. This is a problem that is an, a longstanding problem in the United States that basically nobody has been willing to really address. Again, it's a question of possible futures. Well, without speculating too much, this crisis can do a couple of things. It can teach us ways to do things better and be more inclusive and better use resources to help everyone in our state. Or it can go the opposite way and it can create further divides and more polarization in every aspect of life. But education is particularly vulnerable. That's David McGuire. Sure, David McGuire. I'm the executive director of the ACLU of Connecticut. It's hard to compare, but... McGuire remembers the Ebola crisis. So, I mean, Ebola was a very different crisis in that it affected far fewer people and was spread in a different way. But what it was was kind of the canary in the coal mine. It was that big, high-profile incident that everyone paid attention to that did expose some issues that should have been fixed in subsequent years. We've had four years since then and really have not done anything as a state to prepare for the next public health epidemic, which we're now in the middle of. Now, before we go any further, I should say that Ken Gronbach is hesitant to suggest any long-term effects from this crisis. Gronbach is a demographer. Demography is the study of populations. And it's actually the study of populations of anything. It could be the study of populations of animals. But uh, specifically, I study uh, worldwide populations as they relate to markets. And from a purely demographic standpoint, looking at huge shifts in populations over the course of decades, this current crisis may not mean all that much. I don't want to lose any sensationalism here, but the, the current pandemic is, uh, in terms of uh, overall population, demographic significance is going to be significant in a way, but not really. It's, it's just not. There are far more significant things happening in our economy and in our demography that will influence uh, what, what's going to happen going forward. So, <laughs> am I ruining your story? In fact, Gronbach looks at the number of people in this country getting older and starting families, and he's hopeful for the future. All of these new families are going to need places to live. Because we have Generation Y, because we have millennials, and they've been a very, very expensive generation to raise, but they're raised now. They're, they're, they're essentially, they're 16 to 35 years old, and they're, they're actually entering the labor force. They're actually getting married. They're actually starting households, and there's no place for them to live. So we're going to have to build about 25 million new housing units to house them. Housing is going to drive our economy like a freight train. And it's not going to look back. It can't, it, there's, there's no way it can't happen. It just has to happen. So it's a very exciting time to be in the United States. Gronbach also believes that the next pandemic will be handled much better than this one has been. Because, because it blindsided us. We've never, you know, uh, we have no memory of what happened in, in uh, 1917, 1918. Once we get our act together, we're going to be able to beat this thing, and then we'll beat any future pandemics that come down the road without any problem. Web 2 has some hope for the future. We probably are going to see some acknowledgement that global pandemics are not going to be 
you know, limited or isolated. I mean, we've had SARS, we've had MERS, you know, now we've got COVID. Um, and it's not like these things are going to go away. I think we will have time for reflection. You know, we've been in reaction mode. Um, and as we shift from reaction to reflection, which we will at some point, there's going to be some amount of untangling how we got to now. From Webb's perspective, it's not only about the things we can't change, like viruses, but about the choices we make going forward. It may be pretty bad out there. We are currently living in somebody's future dystopian scenario, right? We are living that out. So this is it. You know, we don't need more dystopian scenarios. We're living in a dystopian scenario right now, right? So that should mean that we are jolted into action. But the virus is like an alien invasion in a science fiction story. Whatever problems there might have been, we now have an alien invasion to contend with. Futurists, when we map out scenarios, sometimes, and I think this happens in game theory too, like sometimes if you get to a point where there's no winning solution, uh, you kind of hope for an alien, inv alien invasion. If you think about the, pre, the immediate pre-COVID world, what were we facing? We were facing a election that had security flaw issues, that had, you know, a wild and cantankerous public argument happening. We had a sudden overnight dispute between Saudi Arabia and Russia that threatened to really negatively impact the global economy. We had China and the United States engaged in a trade war. I mean, we were already dealing with several incredibly difficult issues, in addition to things like misinformation and the Me Too movement, right? I mean, there, there were a lot of things happening. One way to look at the situation we're in right now is that we are currently in the alien invasion, right? The virus, you could think of it as malware, right? That's attacking our, like, a, like an alien malware that's, that's come to earth to, with the, the source code of humanity. So this should be that moment that catalyzes global collaboration. This is our alien invasion moment. Before I let you go, I want to leave you with one thought from Gronbeck, who I found to be very reassuring. We're going to come out of this. We're going to be fine. There's light at the end of the tunnel, and it is not another train. This is Exit 43. My name is Jordan Fenster. If you have a story you'd like to tell, or if you're just feeling isolated and need to reach out, send me an email at jordan.fenster at hearstmediact.com. Thanks for listening, and remember, stay home if you can, and stay safe. Exit 43 is a production of Hearst Connecticut Media. If you liked this podcast, please consider subscribing to our newspapers by visiting ctinsider.com.